Lord, we've heard uh, this story so many times. And yet, even watching these uh, three beautiful young women uh, interpret the story throws um, for us new light onto what it means and, and how your redemptive purposes were working out. We pray the same as we open your word now. We pray that you would uh, use the scriptures uh, by your spirit to continue to uh, inform our understanding of who you are and what you are doing uh, in this world and in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Over Thanksgiving break, uh, Sharon and I had the chance to go down and spend time with Dick and Sybil Towner, who are like my adoptive mom and dad. And their two natural sons were there, and their wives and their kids, and then some grandkids. So we had a whole tribe who were all together. And one of the things the Towners did, some of you may do this as well in your home, they had a table with a puzzle out on it. And it was amazing the way that that puzzle table kind of drew people in towards it. People would walk by and just kind of veer over and look and lean over the shoulder of the people who were uh, busy at work on it and in the hopes of being able to maybe join one piece to another piece. It was, uh, remember, it was a painting of cardinals in a pine tree in the snow. And uh, the easy pieces were gotten out of the way. And by the time I walked over to the table, it was all the hard stuff that was left. Everything looked like everything else. Well, we're in a series that's called We Wish You a Merry Christmas, M-A-R-Y. We're using the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the lens through which we're looking on the events that unfolded in the first Christmas. Two weeks ago, we explored Mary's faith and what it looked like to, to have a deep yes to God, a life that's open to what God desires to do in us and through us. Last week, we looked at a faith that is shaped by a high view of God and a right sense of proportion of our place before him, and also a high view of scripture and that scripture having worked its way into our hearts. Today, it's this picture of looking at how the pieces fit together in the puzzle that is the quality that we'll learn so much from in Mary's life, particularly over all the years of her life as she sought to understand at a deeper and deeper level who her son really was. So we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, beginning at the, the start of that chapter. Um, in verses 1 to 7, we're told uh, about how Mary and Joseph have traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be counted in the census. She's carrying the child that God promised to her through the angel Gabriel. And while they are there, the time for her birth comes and the child is born uh, to them as they are staying in a stable, the only place that they could find for shelter. And then picking up the story in verse 8, this is how it unfolds. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this is a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, I said first service, I think what they probably said first was something like, whoa, or what just happened? And then once they settled down, they say, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things, and she pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So I'd like to ask you to just flip back one verse uh, and look with me again at verse 19, which will really be the focus of the message this morning. It says, Mary treasured up all of these things, and she pondered them in her heart. Here are some of the different ways that these two words, treasure and ponder, have been translated in different versions that are out. They give us a sense of the nuance of each of these words. Treasure is translated in different versions as remember, hold on to, commit to memory, or continue to think about. Keep them in mind might be a good way to sum up what this word means. Not letting these things slip away from her thoughts, but keeping hold of them in her mind. And ponder, in other translations, is captured as reflect, consider carefully, think deeply about, turn over in her mind. In the secular context in the ancient world, this was a word that was used to describe efforts to make sense of dreams and of oracles that had been spoken. After looking at uh, examples of the, the way that the word was used in the ancient world, one New Testament scholar said the best way to capture what this word ponder means is to seek to interpret obscure events, hitting upon the right meaning, often with divine help. It's a great picture of what Mary is engaged in and what God invites us to engage in following her example. So a quick, a quick way to sum up that second word, ponder, is to mull these things over seeking to understand them. So here is Mary in the midst of these events that are turning her life upside down, trying to make sense of one strange thing after another, trying to fit all the pieces together in some way in an understandable whole. Anybody else come to your mind when you think of someone trying to fit the pieces together in an understandable whole? Here's a picture of Mary with, a, uh, with this kind of picture of her mulling these things over and pondering them, trying to fit the pieces together. Uh, this is a picture that's taken from the wonderful movie, The Nativity Story, that I encourage you to, to watch if you haven't seen it yet. And here's a picture of somebody else doing the same thing she's doing. Sherlock Holmes, deep in thought. This is an illustration that comes from the story, The Man with the Twisted Lip. Here's the portion of the story that illustrates, uh, it, it, it illustrates this portion of the story. Uh, that Dr. Watson is telling. I won't do this with an English accent, but I'm tempted. I was quickly between the sheets, for I was weary after my night of adventure. Sherlock Holmes was a man, however, who, when he had an unsolved problem upon his mind, would go for days, and even for a week, without rest, turning it over, rearranging the facts, looking at it from every point of view, until he had either fathomed it or convinced himself that his data were insufficient. It was soon evident to me that he was now preparing for an all-night sitting. 
He collected pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and armchairs upon which he perched himself cross-legged. In the dim light of the lamp, I saw him sitting there, an old briar pipe between his lips, his eyes fixed vacantly upon the corner of the ceiling, the blue smoke curling up from him, silent, motionless, with the light shining upon his strong-set aquiline features. So he sat as I dropped off to sleep. When I woke, the summer sun was shining in the apartment. The pipe was still between his lips. The smoke was still curling upward. Two different pictures of the same thing. Treasuring and pondering. Which comes from Mary to us as an invitation. So the shepherds have come and they've told Mary all these amazing things that have just been told to them. And she's treasuring them. She's pondering them. She's keeping them in mind trying to mull them over, trying to fit the pieces together in an understandable way. But how much mulling over, how much pondering did Mary really need to do? Wasn't it all kind of spelled out for her? We have this idea that Mary would have understood all of it at the moment that she first heard the announcement from the angel Gabriel and said yes. But the reality is that the pieces came together slowly for her, and they came in small bits here and there, just as they did for the disciples. Now think about the small snatches of information that she was hearing over the course of this whole birth narrative. At the announcement from Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, she was given the first few pieces, that she was going to be carrying the long-promised ruler of Israel. In her visit with Elizabeth, in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39, she gains a few more pieces. She's told that her son will be blessed and will be a man with unique authority. When she returns home and Joseph welcomes her in, he would have told her at that point what the angel told him in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 18, that this child had been promised ahead of time in the scripture and that he would be both a rescuer from God and a revealer of God. Now, in this passage that we just read, some more pieces come together. The shepherds recount their incredible encounter with the angels, and she's told that Jesus will be a rescuer and a ruler, not just of Israel, but a ruler of all, and that he would be a bringer of joy and peace. Next week, we'll look at the very next part of the story in Luke chapter 2, when Mary, presenting the baby Jesus at the temple, learns that this same Jesus, this same bringer of joy and peace, will also bring division and pain. And then, during the visit of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, she hears again that this child is the promised king of Israel. And she watches as he is both venerated by astrologers from afar and protected by angels from on high. Who is this child that she's carrying? How does she fit these pieces together? Putting them together in an understandable way would have been difficult for at least two reasons. First of all, because of the economy of Hebrew words and the way that each word in Hebrew really carries a wide range of meaning, these words spoken about her son really could have, have led her to conclude a, a wide range of different things about what was true about him. A son of God could be everything from an ordinary king to a divine being. Messiah was the same. It, it could refer to anyone from an individual who was an anointed by God to do a certain task, to a priest or a king, to uh, the promised one that would come to fulfill God's 
redemptive purposes. A person would bow before God in worship, but they would also bow down and give gifts to a person of high rank as a way of honoring them. Savior is used, is a word that is used as easily to refer to a military commander who is doing a work of rescue as to God who rescues us from sin. And Lord could mean anything from a husband to a person in authority to God himself. So what's the right way to fit all of these pieces together? Who is this Jesus? Further complicating matters, during this time, there was a huge amount of speculation in the air about this promised Messiah and what he would be like. Some thought that he would be priest. Others thought that he would be a king. But most were sure that he would come as a military ruler and would throw off the occupying Romans. As we can tell from the other times that we encounter Mary in Scripture following this uh, set of events that, that were connected to Jesus' birth, we see that Mary continues to wrestle and to struggle with how, the fe- how to fit the pieces together all the way up to the end of her son's life. She is mentioned three more times in the New Testament, from the birth of Jesus up until the death of Jesus. And we see how she's still struggling in each of these to make sense of it all. The first of these is at the end of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. We're told the story of when Mary and Joseph take 12-year-old Jesus with them from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And after they leave for home, they realize that he isn't with them. They finally find him after three frantic days of searching. They find him in the temple discussing the scriptures with the nation's teachers of the law, the highest religious authorities. Mary reproaches Jesus, son, why have you treated your father and I like this? In reply, Jesus reproaches Mary. Don't you understand? Why were you searching for me? I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. His first commitment isn't to his natural family. To a woman saying, your father and I, Jesus points to his deeper allegiance to a higher father. Mary continues to wrestle with fitting the pieces together. It says in connection with this story, and at the end of it, in verse 31 of Luke 2, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. This had become a habit for her, this this holding on to these things and considering them and wrestling them through and trying to fit them all together. Well, the next time that we encounter Mary isn't until 20 more years after that event. Jesus' public ministry has just begun And shortly before this interaction that we'll see in John chapter 2, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. And then he returned to Nazareth to begin his ministry. But he was immediately rejected by his fellow villagers who tried to kill him when he claimed that he was the Messiah who was promised in the pages of Scripture. What's he talking about? This is Joseph's son they say. So then he left his family, he left his village, and he moved to Capernaum and began his ministry. Not long after, there's a wedding that takes place in Cana, which is roughly halfway between Nazareth, where Mary lives, and Capernaum, where Jesus now lives. 
It was the friend or relative of Jesus's family, and both Mary and Jesus are invited. We read about this in John chapter 2. Well, at some point during the celebration, Mary comes to Jesus to tell him that the host has run out of wine. Maybe not a big deal for us, a bit of an oversight, but in that culture, this would have caused a huge loss of face for the host. It's not clear from her words if she is just hinting that it might be helpful if Jesus were to do something, like maybe run down to the wine shop at the corner and and grab some extra. Or maybe she's asking him to do something. Or maybe she's communicating that she expects that he will do something. Jesus' response shows that she is still thinking about him in the wrong terms. She's thinking about him on her terms, in a way that fits into her world and her life and her family system. She sees him as a family member with superpowers who could be helpful in solving a rather awkward social gaffe. John chapter 2, verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replies, my time has not yet come. This is fascinating. No son in this day referred to his mother as woman. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he is addressing the Samaritan woman, who is a stranger at the well. It isn't disrespectful. It is gentle and it is honoring, but it clearly continues to redefine his relationship with her in kingdom terms. She comes to him as her son, and he responds to her as her Messiah. Shortly after this, we are told in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, that because of the word that has begun to make its way to Nazareth, to Mary, about what Jesus is doing and saying in Capernaum, we're told that she and her, her other sons go to Capernaum to gather up Jesus and to bring him home before things get out of hand. It must have been incredibly disturbing to her to learn that Jesus was disputing with the Pharisees, that he was breaking their traditional laws about the Sabbath, and that as a result of his ministry and the things that he was doing, he was being accused by the teachers of the law, by the highest respected authorities, he was being accused by them of being possessed. Wait, Jesus, if you have come as a deliverer, why don't you side with the religious authorities against the Romans instead of offending them and alienating them? She can't figure out how to fit these pieces together. So we're told, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, that Mary and the sons went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Again, Jesus radically redefines his relationship with his earthly family. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Oh, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asks. And then he looks at those who are seated in the circle around him and says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. Well, this sure would have left Jesus or Mary, with much to puzzle through. But she never stops treasuring and pondering. She never stops trying to fit the pieces together and to understand. There are only two more times that Mary is mentioned in Scripture. One is found in John chapter 19, verse 25, 
when Jesus, hanging on the cross at the very end of his life, sees his mother, where at the beginning of his ministry, she was apart from his disciples. Now at the end of his ministry, we find her with them. Something has begun to shift in her. Again, Jesus, even now, calls her woman, but in a tender acknowledgement of his love for her and his debt to her, he entrusts her into the care of the disciple John. And the other mention of Mary, the final one, is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where we're told that a month and a half later, after the death of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is praying together with other Christian believers in the upper room. Not in an elevated role as his mother, or as the mother of the church. No one is praying to her. She is praying with other followers of Christ to him, just one follower among many. Where in Mark chapter 3, she stood outside of the company of believers and outside of a clear understanding of who her son was. Now in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, the pieces have finally come together for her. She releases her son as her son, and she receives her son as her Savior, her Messiah, and her Lord. Now, uh, you may remember the passage from Luke chapter 11, where a woman from the crowd shouts to Jesus while he's teaching and says, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But he replies, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So now we see Mary, as a Christian believer, twice blessed. Blessed to bear him, and now blessed to believe in him. After a lifetime of keeping these things in mind and mulling them over, her son's resurrection from the dead finally and fully revealed who he was and brought all of the pieces together. And Mary wasn't alone in struggling to see how the pieces fit, even after spending every day for nearly three years with him as he taught and performed his miracles. The disciples never fully understood the, the identity of Jesus until after the resurrection when they put the pieces together for them. You may, may remember the story of the conversation between Jesus and two of his followers on the road to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the dead. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25. Jesus said to them, aren't you failing to understand? Aren't you slow to put the pieces together to believe in all that the prophets have said? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And now at that point, following the, the resurrection, we have the picture of Jesus, fully God, fully man. The incarnate expression of the second person in the Trinity who has come to earth on a rescue mission to reconcile us with God through his sacrificial death on the cross in our place. The invitation of Mary's life in this passage is the invitation of her example to a life of treasuring and pondering. Pondering is a long-recognized but under-celebrated Christian virtue. Around the year 1100, one of the church's key thought leaders, a man named Anselm, who at that point was the Archbishop of Canterbury, coined the expression, faith-seeking understanding. He said, faith in God brings with it a constant desire for deeper understanding. Christians earnestly want to understand what they believe. To Anselm, Christian faith sets in motion a quest to know and understand God and what we believe about him. 
Faith causes believers to seek understanding for the joy of knowing him and loving him. Faith seeks understanding and understanding brings joy. Anselm wrote, I pray to you, O God, let me know you and love you so that I may rejoice in you. In their book, I Once Was Lost, Don Everton and Doug Shop describe four stages in the process of a person moving from complete spiritual indifference to a place of becoming a follower of Christ. The first step that has to happen is that a person comes to trust someone who believes in Jesus. But the next stage that happens is that a person would begin to live curiously. That they would move out of spiritual indifference and let themselves become curious about spiritual things. Don and Doug write, to be intrigued about spiritual things is natural. Our souls and our minds are built by God to be curious, to ask questions until we have landed upon satisfying answers. So this move from complacent to curious isn't easy. Complacency is always easier, of course, but it taps into a desire and a need that is wired into all of us by God. Incidentally, our monthly conversations about Christianity those are a great place to practice spiritual curiosity. They're a safe setting in which to share your wrestlings and your ponderings and to see if you can't make some progress in putting some of the pieces together. Our next one will be early in January, right after the Christmas season. Look for it in the bulletin. So Mary gives us an example of pondering and of pondering two things specifically. Though in her case, because Jesus was both her son and God's son, both of these things are combined and interwoven. Mary models for us that we would do well to ponder, first of all, what God is doing in this world. What is God up to? Who is this Jesus and how does he fit into God's purposes? What makes his faith different from all of the other faiths? Why did he come? Why did he die? And what gives me confidence that any of this is true? As Everton Shoprite, Jesus was the king of provoking curiosity in those around him. Jesus was surprising. He did things all the time that were countercultural and that caused those around him to pause and to stare and ask questions. The Pharisees were shocked and they wanted to know why Jesus had touched the leper, why he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, why he was breaking their traditions, why he was letting the prostitute cry all over his feet. The disciples wanted to know why Jesus kept provoking the authorities all the time, why he insisted on heading to Jerusalem when the tensions were so high, why he allowed little kids to take up so much of his important time. Jesus always had an unexpected word for those who came to him. The marginalized expected to be treated like second-class citizens, but Jesus honored them. The arrogant expected to be applauded by Jesus, but he exposed their folly and invited them to become lowly. Everyone had a preconceived notion of which box Jesus fit in, and Jesus stirred their curiosity by refusing to fit their assumptions about him. So what is the shape of the box or the container that you have Jesus in? Is he a wise teacher, a spiritual seeker, or an Eastern mystic, a religious reformer? And how might Jesus' account of himself, how might his own ministry and his own words call into question the assumptions that you have made about him? I believe that the best place to, to practice pondering about the Christian faith as someone who is not a follower of Christ 
The best place to practice that is in the pages of Scripture. And I would suggest in the pages of the New Testament, and specifically in the, the gospel accounts, which are the historical accounts, four different accounts that capture the events of the life and ministry and death of Jesus. I encourage you to read large sections, to read it like you would a novel and to kind of take in the sweep of the whole story. Read it also as, as historical fact that's been corroborated, that, that, is, that is highly attested as we look back on it from a scholarly perspective. Read it in different translations. If you speak another language, consider reading it in that language so that you can hear the words of Jesus in fresh ways each time you encounter them. The reason that we go to the scriptures is because we don't have to just sit in a corner and try to guess how the pieces fit together. God in his scriptures shows us, he guides us in understanding the ways that the facts fit. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, which is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, which is Christ. I think another great place to practice curiosity is by placing ourselves within earshot of the church's preaching and teaching. It's preaching within the context of our worship. It's teaching within the, the context of our adult learning communities, the context of our grow groups or our Bible studies, not because our preaching or our teaching is equal in any way in authority to the scripture, but because our preaching and teaching is always centered on the scripture, and our spending time engaging in those things gives us a little uninterrupted window of time in which to be intentional in practicing pondering. Where else do we give ourselves an uninterrupted half an hour of this leads to this, which actually seems to lead to this? And isn't it interesting because it leads to this sort of sustained focus? In a world in which we are going fact-diving into Google in brief seconds, multiple times a day, staying with sustained reflection is becoming a lost art. And our engaging in preaching and teaching is something that helps us to flex and, and develop our pondering muscles. And the more active that you can be as a listener, not sitting back passively and waiting to hear something that may feel relevant to you, but actively engaging in the process of reflection, anticipating where the message is going, making connections and applications of your own, the more you can do that, the better. Mary models beautifully for us a life of pondering what God is doing in this world. But she also models for us a life of pondering what God was doing in her own life. This means pausing to notice the stirrings and the thoughts that are taking place within us. What is God saying? How might God be leading? What is God bringing to light? What do the death and resurrection of Jesus have to do with me? What does yes to God look like? What might be keeping me from saying yes to God? What is God doing in me? And what does God desire to do through me? This is the sort of reflection that we see Mary engaged in over the course of her life that leads ultimately to her joining in with those other followers of Christ in Acts chapter 1. Wrestling with 
this part of who God is fitting with this part of what God is doing, fitting with this part of what I'm experiencing, fitting with this part of what God is inviting me into. God invites us always to be engaged in that sort of reflection and conversation with him. So how do we go about this? I think a great place to do this, to begin, is just to ask God to help us in this process. Not to seek to do it on our own, but to invite divine help and interpretation. Paul says that he prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Prayer and silent reflection is also important. When is the last time that you closed your phone, closed your book, turned off your TV, pulled out your earbuds, and in a single tasking way, just thought about how the pieces fit together, what God is doing in your life? We live in a world that conspires against reflection. We are surrounded by screens and speakers that shout, pay attention to this, be absorbed to this, become consumed with this. A little bit of research that I found fascinating and troubling. It is proven that if you just have your phone somewhere within sight, that fact alone disrupts your capacity to sustain a line of reflection. Just to think clearly. The presence of your phone disrupts that. The average person checks their phone 58 times a day. Adults average three and a half hours on their phones every single day. Kids ages 8 to 18, seven hours. We give God space to speak to us and to clarify our understanding of who he is and what he's doing when we quiet all the noise inside and outside and we reflect on what God is doing. The final crucial piece of fitting the pieces together is the piece of Christian community. Getting together with other people who are also trying to wrestle with fitting the pieces together. Discussing discussing with others who may be just a little bit farther down the path than we are, the things that they're discovering and learning so that we might benefit and learn from those as well. I love in this context the story of Philip walking along the side of the road and encountering the Ethiopian. This story is told in Acts chapter 8. Philip sees the man riding in his cart and sees that he's reading. Turns out he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? It's part of the gift of Christian communities, our coming together to wrestle with how these pieces join. Thinking back to the time when we were in the Towner's home, I remember a time when I was standing uh, next to Russ. I think for the last 20 minutes or so, Russ had just been leaning on the table and staring at the puzzle. From time to time, he would just move his hand and fit a piece in. Finally, I picked up a piece and I said, has anybody seen a piece that's got black and red on it? Is this the one? It was. It fit together perfectly with a piece that I had. That gathering together around the puzzle together, seeking to make sense of it, seeking to see the picture come together, to see the whole, is the invitation God calls each of us to as individuals, and calls us to together as a family. Would you pray with me? Lord, we invite you to form in us this same heart of treasuring and pondering that we see in Mary. Thank you for the gift of her example 
and for the ways that we are invited by it into a heart that seeks constantly to understand at a deeper and more comprehensive level who you are and what you are doing in this world and in our lives. So Lord, form that heart in us and this Christmas season, join a few more of the pieces for us. We pray in Jesus' name.